Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's the 4th of April today and it's just me here in the studio. But we have a really amazing show. I have a really amazing show um, (laughs) lined up for you. Um, So first thing this morning, um, in just a few moments, we're going to be chatting with Nick Carson, who's going to give us a bit of a report back on the Transgender Day of Visibility um, that happened on Sunday. Then after that, we're going to be talking all things budget um, because the federal budget was released on Tuesday evening. So we're going to talk with Gary Oliver, who's CEO of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. And then after that, we're going to be talking with Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, particularly about the need to raise New Start. Then the last half of the show, we're going to be letting you know about a whole heap of really amazing events that are coming up um, in the next week or so. So at 7.45, we'll be talking with Hannah Morphy-Walsh, um, who's Associate Producer at Footscray Community Arts Centre, um, about the Womanjika Festival, which is happening this Saturday. Then at 8 o'clock, we'll talk with Adolfo Aranjuez, um, who is one is editor-in-chief at Archer Magazine, a magazine focusing on gender and sexuality issues, who's chatting at the Wheeler Centre next Tuesday at an event called More Than Queer. And last up, at quarter past eight, we're really lucky to be chatting with Eric from the Rise Queer Project, um, which is having its launch and a dinner and fundraiser uh, next week as well. And we'll be hearing about the intersections between racism, border imperialism, transphobia and homophobia. But first up, maybe so I can catch my breath, we might go to a bit of a song. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. So I lied. We're not going to go to a song. We we might go to a song later because we actually have uh, Nick Carson on the line who's going to give us a report back about the Transgender Day of Visibility rally that happened on Sunday, 31st of March, last weekend. Good morning, Nick. No, there we go. We're actually going to a song this morning. 
bear with me. Um, so first up, we're actually going to listen to a few tracks this morning um, that are from the... Ah, oh, okay. Actually, no, sorry. My apologies, everyone. I think Nick is on the line now. Good morning, Nick. Hello. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. You're there. Um, thanks so much for joining us so early in the morning, Nick. That's all right. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, I was wondering, for listeners who aren't aware, could you just give us a bit of an overview of what is the Trans Day of Visibility? Yeah, so Trans Day of Visibility um, is one of a, a couple of international sort of awareness days Um around trans stuff. There's another one called the International um, Day of Trans Remembrance um, in November. There's also an International Day of Solidarity with Trans Prisoners in January. But Trans Day of Visibility um, happens on the 31st of March each year. And I forget how long it's been going, but um, it's you know slowly picking up some momentum and um, it's a great day to shine a bit of a spotlight on issues facing trans and gender diverse people. Mm. And how did the rally here in Melbourne on Sunday go? Yeah, it went quite well. Um, in Here in uh, Melbourne and in Morang, Sydney, there were rallies um, and these were the first ever rallies on Trans Day of Visibility in local Australia, um, which was really significant. I mean, we've seen... um, There's been a couple of rallies about trans-specific issues in Australia um, around the Safe Schools... uh, around the time of the attacks on the Safe Schools program. But this sort of represents a bit of a shift in... um, trans activism, I suppose, um, where people are, you know, there's enough trans people in Melbourne and Sydney to be taking a bit more of an active um, step towards addressing the issues facing us um, and not just sort of responding to attacks on us, but trying to get out on the front foot and assert our own narrative and... And in addition to marking this really significant international day, did the rally here in Nam have any particular demands that you were calling for? Um, yeah, there were a few demands related to... Well, there were some general demands, um, which were things around increasing access to trans health care um, and increasing support services around um, homelessness crisis accommodation for trans and gender diverse people specifically. Um, here in Victoria, there's only, I think there's about seven beds that are specifically for um, LGBT um, young people that include, you know, that are inclusive of transgender young people. Because um, as, as people may be aware, there's you know, a lot of exclusion that goes on um, trans people are excluded from a lot of services, like especially services that say that they're for women um, but don't include trans women or if trans women 
try and access those hearts and they can't can't access them. So yeah, a lot of a lot of demands around access whether it comes to um social services, support services, housing services, that sort of thing. But also more general stuff around poverty and employment. Um I mean I would probably describe the situation as sort of crisis levels, whether it's um the unemployment rates in the trans community or the rates of suicidality. Um, there's just some horrible statistics out there that um, really are just going unaddressed. And I think that was the significant thing with these two rallies on Trans Day of Visibility on Sunday um, was that it really sort of represents trans and gender diverse people asserting um, you know, our desire for some of these underlying issues to be addressed. Mm. Um, yeah, but there were also some demands put to Trades Hall, the Victorian Trades Hall Council, around International Women's Day and how that gets organised because the International Women's Day organising collective is pretty... Um, not not all that welcoming of trans women and sex workers. So mm. there's so much so much to be done. Yeah. And I guess unlike, you know, you mentioned before another really significant day, the Transgender Day of Remembrance later in the year, um, the Trans Day of Visibility also aims to highlight a lot of the really incredible and positive um, things that are happening um, in the trans community. And so I was wondering if you could also maybe speak about that as well, you know, and the the incredible sense of coming together that um, was really evident on Sunday and is at all sort of, you know, events like this where there is um, a opportunity to really take up space and to own that and to own all the amazing things that we're doing um, as a trans community in Melbourne. Yeah, so there are a number of other events, um, both here in Melbourne, but also all over Australia. Um, and those events, you know, were from just small gatherings to sort of performance events. And Transgender Victoria actually hosted a couple of events on trans visibility in the, the morning on Sunday, the panel, um, Trans Voices of Colour panel, um, that was sort of trying to amplify and centre the voice of trans people of colour. Um, and then in the evening there was a performance night with trans performers, musicians, um, there was an open mic, spoken word, poetry. Um, so, you know, there's lots lots going on. And I guess the thing that makes the rallies significant is that um, there's, you know, there's often a lot of events sort of increasing the visibility of trans and gender diverse people um, and getting our voices heard. But there, there isn't as much um, focus on um, trans and gender diverse resistance and survival mm-hmm. and resilience and um, all, of, all of that sort of stuff, which, you know, there's trans and gender diverse organisations that get government funding, but obviously... 
the, the types of events that they can do and the types of things they can mobilise that funding for are restricted by government. Um, so it's very difficult for some of those organisations to be critical of governments like the Victorian state government who are just building more prisons and putting billions of dollars mm. towards policing while putting next to no money towards things like trans health care and long-term public housing um, solutions for trans people and these types of things. Mm. So it's really important that all trans voices are heard on trans day of visibility um, on a range of different issues, especially the issues that are critical of governments and organisations that mm. either aren't ch- talking about these things or can't talk about these things. Yeah, and I do really appreciate that point because I think I'm often pretty dubious around these sorts of, you know, international days of celebrating something um, because they can often feel quite meaningless and, you know, an opportunity for, uh, you know, funded organisations to sort of pat themselves on the back around their engagement in quote-unquote, you know, diversity or intersectionality or something like that. Um, But I feel like, as you've sort of been explaining, you know, Transgender Day of Visibility was and continues to be an opportunity to also really highlight the issues that are important to us in the ways that are important to us. Yeah, totally. And Miss Major, who is a formerly incarcerated trans woman of colour um, living in the US, she sent a video message around to people on Trans David's Dirty where she talked about how you know, trans women of colour are you know, hyper-visible um, and for many trans women of colour, the most extreme violence happens when, um, you know, they're passing as women, but then their transness becomes visible. And so her her message to people was that um, cisgender people, gender-conforming people, um, allies and supporters of trans and gender-diverse people really need to step up and um, show, make their support of trans and gender-diverse visible um, on other days, Mm. every day of the year, because that's the sort of thing that increases the safety and well-being of trans and gender diverse people. If there's gender people and gender-conforming people out there saying, yep, trans people exist and they're actually my friends or my partner, my work colleagues, and, um, and I'm stepping up and taking a stand against violence against trans and gender diverse people and all of these other civil things like unemployment and um, gatekeeping access to healthcare, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, And we do need to wrap up now, but can you just let us know, how can folks find out more about, either about the rally or about other um, events that are going on in the trans community? Um, Yeah, well, Transgender Victoria um, does some great events. Um, and they're out there, but um, there's a couple of new groups in Melbourne and in Sydney called Trans Action Nam Melbourne and Trans Action Warang Sydney. Um, and they've both got social media and email lists, so you can probably find them on social media, Facebook, Instagram, those sorts of things, um, and send a message to them if you want to get more involved and come along to a meeting and organise some things that maybe some trans 
organisations that are government funded can't uh, be seen doing. Brilliant. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Nick. Thanks for talking. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Just before, we were chatting with Nick Carson about the Transgender Day of Visibility on Sunday. And up next, I'm going to play a song um, by Philly called Yalul. Um And I'm playing this tonight because last night, um, some of you might have gone along to the Japarung fundraiser that happened at the Gasso, uh, which was fundraising um, to support all the frontline resistors at, up at camp, at the Japarung camp, who are protecting the sacred trees up there. And there was a really incredible lineup last night, including Camp Cope headlining, Philly, Kalyani, as um, DJing as DJ Kayans, um, Kenan Ironfield and Alara. And so this morning, when I've got a moment between all these interviews, um, I'll be playing some tracks from you by the incredible artists who were playing last night. So up next, we've got Philly Yulal. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Um, that was uh, Yule by Philly, who played at the Gasso last night for the Jabarung fundraiser. Up next, we have Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union on the Dignity Not Dole rally to raise new start today and also about the federal budget more broadly. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so I was wondering, to start off, can you just um, let listeners know about the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union? Yeah, so we're a voluntary-run uh, group of advocates who basically campaign for the rights and dignity of Social Security recipients and unemployed workers. Uh, we have a free uh, advocacy line, one eight hundred aewu for you, where we're dispensing uh, free advice, try and help job seekers, social security recipients through the system. Uh, as you're probably aware, the system's getting ever more complicated, uh, labyrinthine and punitive, and there's no real support services. 
for the people within it. And then sort of the other half of what we do is we do have sort of a campaigning arm, uh, and that's where you know today's protests uh, come out of, and we do a lot of work trying to uh, lobby uh, governments to end punitive programs like Work for the Doll, Parents Next, etc. And so the federal budget um, was released this week on Tuesday evening. What does the budget offer for unemployed and low-income people? Uh, pretty much nothing, uh, which is uh, you know more than more than expected. Um, what we didn't expect was that not only did the budget not offer uh, you know, anything uh, to unemployed workers, though, to give the government credit, they did did backflip and, and now giving unemployed workers a $75 <laughs> energy subsidy as, as a one-off. Um, but really, what looking through the uh, lens from an unemployed worker's perspective, uh, the budget uh, is promising to take back over $2 billion uh, in welfare payments over the next uh, five years. So that's literally a plan through the budget the government's announced uh, to take money away from some of the poorest uh, citizens uh, in the country. And assumingly, they're going to be doing that by pursuing even more robo-debt, um, by accusing even more unemployed workers of uh, overpayment. Um, or of just cutting uh, more people off their uh, their entitlement entirely. So um, it was, it's it's an extremely scary uh, budget, as most of them are for for social security recipients these days. And you mentioned robo debt just then, and um, I did notice in the federal budget there's something about you know savings that are generated through automated income reporting. Yeah. Um, could you explain for us what that is and how it will affect people? Yes, yeah, so uh, the way uh, it works now uh, in 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 link to to logic claim, you know, as we sort of know, it's uh, increasingly uh, a digitized uh, operation, and the government's committed to that. The problem the problem with that, apart from uh, the algorithms not working properly, which is a big a big problem in the robo debt case, it's that there's no safeguard uh, to stop people from having their having their payments suspended and that's already turned out to be a huge uh, boon uh, for the government and its plan to sort of you know use these austerity measures to unburden the budget um, like you know previously before this sort of digitized income reporting system um, there was a safeguard uh, every for example every payment suspension had to go through had to go through settling who you know gave a little tick off uh, if, if they deemed that uh, you know the the suspension was legitimate. Now it's a completely automated uh, system where you know, for example, if you uh, as a job seeker fail to click the right button on your phone to you know, tell Centrelink that you're attending university that day or whatever your other obligations are, um, you can just cop an immediate automated uh, payment suspension. And that's why there were 1.6 million of these automated suspensions imposed just last year. Uh, which is a new record, um, and that's why um, you know we really worry there's, there's, there's going to be uh, even more of them as the system becomes even more online, uh, completely more targeted, and, and even more automated. Mm. 
And we also know that this increased, you know, targeting and automation of um, the system has such real and devastating consequences for people's lives. Mm. Um, you know, we and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, there was that um, report around the number of suicides where, um, you know, folks had been had received um, an robo debt notice, essentially. Yeah. So that and that came out in Senate estimates not that long ago. So. You know, given this budget has gone and the coalition are still, despite it coming out that over 2,000 people <laughs> who received a robo-debt ended up taking their lives, uh, the government, it's, it's staggering that they've continued to bury their head in the sand and continued to go full full steam ahead uh, with uh, sort of pursuing this you know, digitised compliance system. It's not just that as well. It's we, we know... Um, from other data released around the same time that, uh, you know, this automated system is having a huge impact on the very poorest people in the system. So these are people sort of um, homeless or at risk of homelessness. Obviously, the people who, for example, can't afford a smartphone to do their digital compliance, Mm. can't afford secure internet at home, the people who are just trying to hold on um, you know, to the system to get their entitlements. Those are the people we're finding as well who are who are copying uh, the you know the brunt of these penalties, unsurprisingly. Mm. And to return to Newstart, so the you know the Australian um, Unemployed Workers Union and many other unions and bodies have been calling for a raise in Newstart for a very long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Before we get into that more broadly, just around this backflip that the government did um, the morning following the budget, is that actually meaningful or have they been listening to any of the um, advocacy that you and other folks have been doing around Newstart? I, I think they've heard I think they've heard the backlash, but I wouldn't say they've been listening. I think it was very clear uh, yesterday, like Scott Morrison uh, and, and Josh Frydenberg mentioned this uh, in, in Parliament that uh, so if listeners aren't aware, uh, there's this $75 energy subsidy uh, promised to everyone except New Start recipients, and there was obviously a bunch of scorn and anger um, coming from coming from the community, um, uh, which led some people to believe that that's why uh, the coalition backflipped and ended up giving unemployed workers the subsidy. But they said pretty clearly in Parliament yesterday that they knew... Uh, they wouldn't get the budget through, uh, that, that some of the crossbench uh, wouldn't vote uh, for a budget, that that deliberately excluded a new start recipient. So I think it was Frydenberg yesterday said very clearly that, you know, they realised they weren't going to get, you know, the votes they needed if they didn't include it. So that, that was sort of the reason for the backlash. So it wasn't like, a you know, they didn't sort of grow a conscience <laughs> overnight or... Uh, they didn't listen to the. It doesn't seem like they listened to the righteous plea um, of of activists and, mm. and welfare rights advocates, but um, it just seemed like a very sort of pragmatic uh, decision to uh, get their budget through. Totally, and somewhat tokenistic, we could say yeah, as well. Yeah, um, and what it really shows is, you know, not anything around the government actually being accountable or listening, but rather, you know, it does it. What it does tell us is that you know activism also works. You know that that um, this campaigning around New Start does That's, have a massive. It's just so important. Absolutely, and I've been you know there's lots of obviously lots of doom and doom and gloom around this space, but I've been overwhelmed uh, this week by just the 
uh, community uh, outpouring just that we've talked about uh, new start and, and and unemployed worker issues all week which you know is really unheard of <laughs> sadly um, during budget week and this was as as, as you're saying, this is certainly a testament uh, to groups like ours, to groups like the Anti-Poverty Network, ACOS. Uh, you know, we've really formed a, a coalition of our own, uh, so to speak, where, you know, we've been, um, you know, battling at this uh, for a few years. You know, uh, according to latest survey data, 70% of the Australian population now uh, want an immediate uh, race to Newstart. Um, you know, we've really... You know, started building um, a critical mass, and I think you're right. It, it you know, it does show, uh, you know, the value, um, you know, and and how change actually happens coming from, in our case, low income campaigners um, putting these issues on the table. Mm. And so now I want to talk about the the um, the rally that's happening today, um, yeah. the Do- Dignity Not Dole rally. Um, but before I do, I might just let listeners know that you know our very own Georgie Maxwell from Tuesday Breakfast um, this week on Q&A had a really incredible um, moment. She asked a question around, you know, why why Newstart hasn't changed or hasn't increased in real terms over 25 years. And the rally today is picking up on the exact same theme. Um, And I believe there's actually going to be a cake. So could you tell us more about that? Um, And, you know, Georgie... You know, so appreciated her question, uh, even though she made me watch Q and A for the first time uh, in, a, in, a, in a long time. But yeah, it's the the twenty fifth uh, budget in a row without a meaningful raise uh, to the new start entitlement, which um, is as as ridiculous uh, as it sounds. Like twenty five years ago, uh, you could buy petrol for about uh, sixty cents. A leader, so you can imagine, sort of, given the uh, cost of living increases, how much more difficult it is uh, to survive now. Instead of, you know, we've been rallying around this uh, for a long time, um, super aggro. So this time we've decided to take um, kind of a different tack, a more, I guess, satirical tack, where, you know, 25 years without that a raise, you know, we, we feel like this is a big achievement. Um, we want to recognize. You know, we want to want to show uh, Treasurer Frydenberg um, that we're thinking about him on this, you know, special momentous day. So, so yeah, we're going to have a bit of a you know, twenty fifth new start birthday um, party outside his office. Uh, I've got the cake lined up. Um, we're going to have twenty five candles um, on it. We got a bunch of our members to sort of write in notes um, for him about what they think. Um, about his failure to raise the rate, um, about um, what their life is like um, on the new start entitlement. So we've got a bunch of, you know, a bunch of cards, and you know, we'll offer his office some cake and 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 talk to passers-by, and um, you know, really show that you know beyond um, beyond the frivolity of that, that uh, there is we are unemployed workers are, you know, the sort of the cost. Of, of pursuing um, this kind of surplus, um, like we consider this surplus to be coming um, at our deficit. Um, you know, some new start recipients are, are living as low as $243 per week uh, below the below the poverty line. Um, in a rich country like Australia, that uh, you know could afford you know, and used to afford um, a decent social security system, 
uh, for all the kind of trying to make that presence felt that, you know, this is completely unacceptable and, um, uh, you know, that, you know, we want, we want to see what is, you know, we want him to see what his achievements are and his achievements are you know, keeping us so, so, so below the poverty line. So that's kind of the, the rationale yeah. um, behind today's, today's little party outside his office. And Jeremy, we do have to wrap up now, but could you just repeat for listeners um, the details of how they can, you know, if they're free this morning, how they can come along and show support for raising New Start, and also how they can find out more about the AUWU? Yes, yeah, so we'd love anyone to come along. So uh, Minister Frydenberg's office is on 695 Burke Road, Camberwell. We'll be there um, from around 11.30 uh, to 1pm. So we get the sort of lunchtime traffic, offer people some cake, um, if, if people can't come, they can follow our, our socials. They can use the dignity, dignity.doll hashtag. If people would like to uh, join our campaigns or, or join the union, they can just go to unemployedworkersunion.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So that was Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union around the rally outside Frydenberg's office this morning um, to raise New Start. Um, you can follow on Twitter if you look up the hashtag, um, hashtag Dignity Not Dole. So up next, we're going to jump into a track um, called That's All I Came For by Kalyani and Isha. I'm Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming to visit us and doing stuff like this, you know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. 
That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 when I first come to this jail, it was about 10 years ago, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and they called me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor, you know, way back when. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am on your dial. Uh, just before, we were listening to a track by Kalyani and Isha. That's all I came for. Um, Kalyani uh, was DJing last night at the Jabarung fundraiser at the Gasso, as was Philly, who we played earlier this morning. And now we're really lucky to have in the studio Hannah Morphy-Walsh, who is Associate Producer, um, is that right? Yes, at um, Footscray Community Arts Centre. And we're going to be chatting about the Womanjika Festival that is happening this Saturday. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, so for listeners who don't know about it, what is the Womanjika Festival? The Womanjika Festival is an annual festival um, created by and the by the <laughs> um, local indigenous um, community in Footscray. Um, a bunch of, like, it's an amazing bunch of curators, artists, um, community workers, community members. Um, and every year we basically just showcase the talent we have in the West. Um, and how long has Womanjika been running for? And um, how did it come about? We were in our ninth year this year. Yeah, amazing. Pretty good. So good. Um, and what what does like what can people expect if they come along on Saturday? Like what's the lineup look like? Um, it's pretty intense this year. Um, it's a one day festival. We're starting with a um <clears throat> sorry, with a ceremony, um, around the river, um, around sort of healing, connection, that kind of thing. Um and then we are going to the Black Screen program. Um and we are very lucky. We this year we have um the film I'm sorry, I'm floundering slightly here. <laughs> oh good, yeah. I can't remember what it's called myself either, but it looks amazing. It's around uh per, around like um family history around fishing. And the river, right? Yeah, Teach a Man to Fish, directed yep. by Grant Saunders. Um, and I believe we're going to have Grant Saunders talk as well. Um, and so then we have a Water Talks forum where we're talking about, like, water futures, um, you know, waterways and what they... Mm. Yeah, because that's that's a bit of a theme this year, right? Um, around waterways. Yeah, you... no. So it 
kind of it's been in the works for a while mm -hmm. but last year the stony creek um like pollution um like really sort of like reached i guess mm. so like it's sort of the catalyst where um so this year like we're very focused on sort of the idea of healing and how do we go forward with this very sort of toxic mm. i think sort of yeah um well at the moment like what do we as indigenous and non-indigenous people do with that yeah um i mean no that makes it sound so negative it's mm. like it's really sort of a space for sort of positivity and like looking at you know like like futures and solutions and mm. these sorts of things um but does have some pretty dark roots, I think. Because, mm. um, yeah, on Thursday breakfast, we have, um, you know, had quite a few conversations with with people around the, the Murray River um, and the Barker River, like the crisis and all the, um, you know, around the importance of water rights and the... Yeah, particularly, you know, we chatted with, for example, like Dispossessed around the fundraising they're doing to get, you know, water up on country. Um, we've, ch yeah, we've actually, we've probably covered it around three or four times or something. So it's something that we've, we're hoping to sort of keep a conversation going on Thursday breakfast, which is why it's also, you know, I hadn't realised that um, Womanjika this year was also focused on water rights and water futures. Um, well, I mean, it's so important. I, I think for as long as like I've been alive, water has been such a vital and yet sort of under like folk there's a lot mm. of like everyone's very acutely aware of what water means to their personal lives mm. but there's just something in the mainstream that's sort of missing there's this disconnect and no totally and also because footscray community arts center is right on the river hey oh yeah like um overlooking the docklands very scenic mm. um and after the film on saturday there's gonna be there's am i right there's like some a bunch of music and stuff happening yeah no so the um next thing that is happening down the line <laughs> um is the opening of the um second black to the future exhibition uh spelled black to the future for the two Super cool. So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's again, um, carries through the themes of the river, um and sort of rights in general. It's a very it's a very immersive exhibition. Um and yeah, I'm really excited like I'm really excited. It's Yeah. Um can you share with us any of the artists that are involved or some of the themes that are coming out of that exhibition? I feel like I... Um, no, it's... Or is it a You secret? kind of just have to... Like, okay, we just have, have to, to go. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Um, the curators are Savannah Kruger and um, Rosie Kalina. Yeah, amazing. Um, local, young, emerging... <laughs> Like all of the sort of good things that you want, it's fun. It's just mm. gonna be fun. 
Um, and as part of the Black to the Future team, um, we then sort of go into um, this event called Black Club. Um, and like it's basically a dance party. Um, <laughs> it's being programmed by Caitlin Bauer, who is 14. He's going to kill me if I get his age wrong. Um, but he is like, He's um, got this, like, amazing music program of Philly's going to be in it, coincidentally. Yeah, rad. And um, am I right that were you, did you, were you involved in curating the first Black to the Future show? Yeah, no, I was. Um, it was intense. And, like, this year I've, like, just been producing it. Equally intense, but a lot less sort of, a lot smoother in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so excited to come along on Saturday and check out Womanjika. Um, maybe just to wrap up, how can people find out more? Um, you can go to the Footscray Community Arts Centre website, footscrayarts.com. Um and it's what it's like from one one p.m. twelve p.m. It starts at twelve thirty. Um, and also, you totally missed out on the like second half of the like. <laughs> we have an evening program. We have more music. Ah, please yes. tell us. There's so much music. Um, <laughs> so then there's um a then like there's a closing ceremony sort mm-hmm. of yeah um very heavily like focused on elders and um um after that we have sort of this evening of like storytelling there's going to be projections onto Mm. like structures around the river this new roof that's been under construction for the last two years um it's finally open so we get to do something fun with it and acoustic um, music, sorry. Awesome. Sounds like it's going to be a massive day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, is there anything else that we should know about Womanjika Festival that's happening this Saturday? Or is that... Um, I feel like I have probably left out a heap of things. No, that that's kind of the programme. And I guess listeners will just have to come along. Yes, it's... There's... It's going to be great. Like, there's stalls, there's, you know, like, you get the chance to really kind of feel the vibe of the local, like, Indigenous community. It's it's great. Um, yeah, so get down there this Saturday from 12.30 at Footscray Community Arts Centre, uh, which is the 6th, so it'll be 6th of April. Um, jump online on Footscray Community Arts website to find out more. Thanks so much, Hannah, for joining us this morning. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun in which way the wind blows. You're on 3CR, Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. Just before, we were chatting with Hannah Murphy-Walsh about uh, Womanjika Festival happening this Saturday. And up next, we're going to listen to Waller is Life by Alara. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. That was Walla is Life by the incredible Alara, who played at the Jabarung fundraiser last night. Up next, um, we're going to be chatting with Adolfo, who is editor of film and media um, periodical Metro and also editor-in-chief of the sexuality and gender magazine Archer. We're going to be chatting about an event that's coming up next week called More Than Queer at the Wheeler Centre. Good morning, Adolfo. Hi, Anne. How are you? I'm really well. How are you going? Oh, you know, I try to wake up. Um, you know, we queers, we're on queer time. We don't really wake up until after, you know, after 10 or something. I fully understand. <laughs> but I'm here. I'm ready. You know, I'm here to plug things. I oh, appreciate it so much. Um, so to kick off... Um, before we jump into the event that you're part of next week, I actually just wanted to talk a bit about your own work, first of all. Oh, okay, Because sure. you're such an incredible, you know, writer, editor, um, and also dancer. But to start off, I saw that you um, wrote the cover essay of the most recent Mianjin. Yes. <laughs> um, where you're exploring, you know, sexuality, gender, and also the difficulty with pinning down any sort of like fixed sense of mm-hmm. self. So can we kick off by maybe just talking about this this word, this label queer? And you mm-hmm. know, it's definitely not perfect, but what what is so powerful about the word queer? Sure. Um, so obviously, historically, um, queer is quite loaded, um, especially for the older generation, in that it was used as a derogatory term to, um, I guess, ostracize them or even pathologize them. Um, but, you know, it was reclaimed in the process. And then um, from a different sector altogether, so, you know, kind of, I guess, either separate from or in conjunction with the community. Um, it was used in academic circles, um, so especially in, in film and literary studies, queer um, was used as a designator for, you know, specific kinds of texts, um, and it was also used as a way to analyse um, in a specific way. So to queer a text is to, you know, go against the reading that was intended by the creator, um, to go against convention, um, and even, you know, basic things like reading homoeroticism and characters that were sensibly straight or, you know, seeing potential for the fracturing of, um, you know, traditional ideas about family, et cetera. Um, so kind of those things are all, even if we're not aware of them, uh, inherited in the way we use the word queer now. Um, so, yeah, queer is an adjective, queer is a noun, queer is a verb. Um, and all of those things, I think, come into play when someone identifies as queer. Um, for me, um, as I kind of go into in the essay, I feel it's less um, about 
for me, yeah, identity is less about the, the label that we're using, more about the performance or the way we perform, um, the way we present in, in everyday life. And queer, um, because it's such an encompassing term, it's both really precise um, and kind of meaningless at the same time. And I know that sounds a little bit self-contradictory, and I hope I kind of clarified that in the essay, but having a word that means both everything and nothing is really liberating for us um, as people and as people who perform and identify and desire and love in specific ways. Um, a little kind of, uh, I guess, comparison point that I mentioned in passing is this identity that I grew up with, um, or this label, whatever you'd like to call it, from the Philippines, which is bakla. And, you know, that encompasses anything from a mask, you know, cis male interested in mask cis men to what we would call a trans woman in the West. It's just this term that, you know, it, it, it's so imprecise, but it's also very precise. If you say, I'm bakla, like, you know what that means. Um, it can also be derogatory, of course. But, yeah, I guess that's that kind of, like, that opening up of potential beyond something so rigid is actually, I think, quite liberating. Um, and so that's what queer functions as for me. Um, I know what queer means, even if maybe I can't pinpoint what that is when someone says this is a queer event, um, you know, or I dress really queer. Like, we know what those things mean, mm -hmm. even if we can't, you know, list a specific number yeah. of terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. That's where the power lies. Yeah. And so this event that you're a part of next week is called More Than Queer, though. Mm -hmm. So why do we also need to think about more than queer or beyond queer? Or like in the description of the event, it says something about, you know, the, the spaces between the letters, you know, mm -hmm. LGBTIQA and the sort of intersecting identities that might occupy those spaces. Yeah. Um, so this concept, um, actually, I can't take credit for it. It's not mine. Um, even if I'm moderating the event, it was the brainchild of um, Archer's publisher and founding editor, Amy Middleton, and um, Hiroki Kobayashi of the Wheeler Center. And uh, it is actually part of an ongoing conversation series called Private Parts. Um, but I guess for me, you know, the way I'm bringing into this, um, this like, coming into this idea as the, the moderator is kind of a similar concept that I kind of took into my essay, which is that, yeah, like more than means this, this, the way I've uh, conceptualized queer and the way anyone has conceptualized queer is never going to be enough precisely because words come secondary to the lived experiences that we've got. Um, so the reason we have all these um, identity labels in the acronym, for example, is because at some point we realized that the letters that we had weren't sufficient to capture the experiences and the lives of people, right? And so identities, genders, words in general will keep coming up as new experiences and new phenomena arise in our lives. So more than clear is an acknowledgement that, you know, yeah, there might come a time where we add more things to the acronym. I, I personally feel it's a little bit unnecessary to keep, um, it, it can be unnecessary rather, um, to continually be so preoccupied with, with labels. But, you know, if people feel validated by the labels, then why not? Because words do exist for us um, in a way, you know, for a functional purpose for us. We use the words. And the important thing is that we don't let the words uh, dictate how we live or we don't let the words lord over us. And so more than clear is, is that kind of reminder that, yes, we are these letters, we are these labels, we are these designations, but ultimately we're also humans in other ways um, so we've opened up the, I've opened up the, the pre-panel chat um, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And that keeps coming up that, you know, we're, we're not just these things. A person isn't just a queer person. You know, they're also a, I don't know, a basketball player or, you know, um, a musician, a food lover, you know? Like, so, yeah, I guess we're, we're more than the labels that people put on us. 
Um, and for us as well, when we self-identify those things, we acknowledge each time that that's just one part of who we are, mm. um, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And the event's going to be discussing um, some of the most pressing issues facing you know, Australia's very diverse queer population. Um, what are your views on that in terms of some of the most pres- pressing issues facing our communities? I think the forefront um, of our minds at the moment really is where, where to next after, in Australia anyway, after the, the same-sex marriage win. Um, and that's actually a piece that I deliberately commissioned in the previous issue of Archer. Um, the theme was gays. Not, not G-A-Y-S, gays, as in seeing gays. Um, and, you know, I kind of played with the idea of gays and visibility. And so for, for us in our communities, plural, because there are many of us and we're various, hence more than queer, um, there's this kind of idea in some sectors that we have, you know, quote, unquote, won because we now have this, this right to, to marry, which is, you know, really, if you think about it, the bastion of traditional cisgender heterosexual life um, and was something that was used, was weaponized against us to invalidate our identities. You know, you're, you can't have a family. You're not real people. You're not worthy people. You're lesser people. Um, but, and, you know, and of course that's quite validating and empowering to certain people um, who want that and, and who feel that this now gives them um, an added dimension, if you want to call it, to public life. Um, but a whole bunch of, you know, people in our communities are also left out by this win, and that's, I guess, something that applies to a lot of change that's happening for us. Um, for trans people especially, and, and people who aren't cisgender, the same-sex marriage win is actually quite um, alienating because there's a whole bunch of new obstacles now that they have to face. Forced divorce is one particular one where if you're already married to someone um, before you transition, you're going to have to divorce your partner to marry again under your new identity after your transition. I don't know if people know about that, but that's a massive issue. That's really, really scary if you think about it, um, because your life that already exists is, is, is challenged, you know, to the core. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the most pressing issue, um, really, in, in any experience forms. We need to see that um, we aren't a collective. You know, it's, it's an acronym that people use for convenience, but it's not. Actually, it's actually quite misleading. We're not a uniform group, um, and each each group, each person within that acronym within our communities faces different challenges, and we need to be able to account for all of those rather than saying, "Well, I say as a gay man, um, have I can marry my partner now? I'm great. You know, <laughs> mm. I'm I'm comfortable." Well, no, the fight keeps going, and this this idea of a win, um, of, or, or even the notion of equal equality being achieved, is contentious because a new um, form of a new struggle will keep coming up, and we need to ensure that we're not complacent. There's always, you know, forms of resistance. Queer is also about being resistant, right? If we go back to that academic idea of it, you know, going against the grain, reading against um, the intended meanings, you know, seeing beyond, seeing beneath. Um, so to be queer is to be forever resisting um, and pushing again. So I think that's important that we kind of embed that into the way we live. Absolutely. And I really appreciate the point that you mentioned around also, you know, challenging complacency as well. Because if, we if we don't look at, um, you know, the, the spaces between those, the letters of the acronym, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. also certain, certain identities can really slip in and become normalised or become centred um, in queer events or queer communities, you know, namely that like whiteness, for example, um, mm-hmm. can become, 
uh, sort of, you know, the, the unspoken norm when it comes yeah. to queer visibility um, totally. when those, you know, everything else isn't taken into account as well. And also that's, I mean, tokenism is the other kind of big um, elephant in the room, we'll say, um, mm. in the sense that, you know, there is a huge tendency, especially within corporate culture um, and commercial culture to, and even just the media, to feel that, you know, they've done their job when there is one queer person, you know, they, the, the tick, box, tick box approach, basically. Um, but there's no kind of further interrogation of, yeah, but what kind of queer person have you included? In what way have you included or depicted or hired that queer person? Are they fulfilling, you know, a specific... Uh, representative role in, in in that organization or that program where they're meant to encompass everyone um, and everyone else in, you know, everyone in their communities and then the rest of the cohort is just the mainstream traditional straight person. Um, mm. You know, this is equally damaging to us than, than just not being present at all. Um, and we have to weigh up the pros and cons and how we can challenge that or improve on that. Mm. And Adolfo, in addition to being a really incredible freelance writer, editor, you know, public speaker, you're also a dancer, um, which I just find <laughs> so phenomenal. Um, can you talk a bit about how how dance um, intersects or builds on these other forms of your creative practice. practice? Yeah, sure. Um, so dance for me, um, and I imagine for a lot of people, is a way to uh, communicate with the world or uh, express themselves in a modality that's different from the cognitive. So, you know, humans are very much word-based uh, words, as we know, we're talking about words now and, you know, conceptualizing how we can be more than queer and challenging labels. Um, that's that's the mode that especially intellectuals and artists work in, We we um, and writers especially, we... we interface with things we make sense of things through words the way we define them but words are inherently linear um words are hierarchical inherent in words are you know categories and divisions and, and oppositions whereas um yeah language uh, sorry dance exists in a different sort of plane um it's even hard to explain what it means um in terms of aspect but it's kind of like you have more than just you know the two axes you know because words for us, when we print them, um, and that's how we largely communicate complex ideas, in fact, more than through speaking, right? We write things um, so that we have the time to pause and reflect. It's quite linear, like it goes in one direction. But when you engage in a dance, it's, yeah, it's about the time. It's about the music. It's about the room. Um, it's about what you see. It's about what you feel. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's really hard to explain. But you're really challenging me because I actually am uh, writing a piece for the Lucid Brow on um, dance. And there's this idea called Flow um, by a, I think he's Czech, uh, theorist. So I, I, obviously we talk about flow in the, the everyday sense, going with the flow, you know, finding the flow. Mm -hmm. um, but he actually theorized this fight, I think it was in the 70s or 80s. Um, and it's, it's, it's rooted in, in psychological and neurological theory, this idea that when you are engaged in an activity that is a little bit, the challenge level is a little bit higher than your possessed um, expertise level, um, you get into this zone where you kind of, everything gets blocked out and you're focused in that movement. So I get that in dance in a way that I can't with words because when you're working with words, you always have to be conscious of why you're putting certain String, you know, stringing things together. Um, but dance forces you to be in the moment because you're always a little bit 
uncomfortable, you're worried about falling down when you're doing a turn, um, you need to be conscious of the music. And so another part of the piece that I'm writing, but also my practice in general, is this idea of not moving above um, or in front of the music, which is really important for the genres that I work in especially. So maybe not so much for ballet, um, but for hip-hop and lyrical and contemporary, um, you need to really let the music take you... um, you don't anticipate the movement. The movement has to be initiated by the music. Yeah. Um, and that really kind of partners in with queer um, and with my own mental health issues, um, this idea that you have to be present, you have to be in that moment. And again, that's something kind of separate from or different from writing because with writing, you're very separate. You need to be detached and objective, uh, or maybe not objective, but you are separate from the moment. You take that moment, you seize it from the spontaneity of it and you pin it down, yeah? You make kind of... Um, a clear, yeah, kind of rigid totally. position on it. Whereas when yeah. you're dancing, even if you have a choreogra- the choreography to work with that you've written or that someone else has written, it's never the same. Um, each time you perform it is different because the modality of it is different. The moment is different. The flow is different. Yeah. Um, and Adolfo, we do have to wrap up in just a moment. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, what you were saying just then really um, – I feel like it links back so well in terms of sort of saying how how these words, whether it's queer or LGBTIQ, you know, they're always insufficient to express and embody our identities. And actually Mm -hmm. that dance, for example, does something so different that words actually can never do. Totally, yeah. But just to wrap up really briefly, can you let us know how we can find out more about the event next week? Sure. So if you just head to the Wheel of Santa website um, or if you Google more than queer or private parts, um, yeah, you can book tickets there. It's free. Um, and tickets are kind of selling out. Oh, sorry, booking out really quickly. But yeah, it's next, this coming Tuesday, 9th of April, 6.15 p.m., just for an hour. 45 minutes of chatting, 15 minutes of audience Q&A. And yeah, you'll be seeing me um, asking questions to Jack's Jackie Browse, Peter Raples Crow, and Sayuka Gori. Amazing people. Amazing. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Adolfo. No problem. Thanks for having me. VCR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come smarter than a Tricia Community Radio, please subscribe now. Testamiona ila ida Tricia Community Radio araja al istrakel an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli Tricia rai kertu kondir kondir kal. Rinre nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Netsuketsek Radio y Gairanin, Boretangudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin, Hima Artanakrevetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. You're tuned in to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Uh, it's 17 past eight. Um, just before we were chatting with Adolfo and Juez about the More Than Queer event at the Wheeler Centre. And right now we're going to be um, talking to Eric from the Rise Queer Project um, about their launch dinner and fundraiser that is happening next week. Good morning, Eric. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. To start, Thank you for having would, me. Would you be able to just tell us a bit about the Rise Queer Project? Oh, yes. So um, the Rise Queer Project is a very unique project, and I believe that is the first of its kind in so-called Australia. 
um, where it's us queer refugees who lead the project, who make all decisions about the project. And so that means we decide what to do. We decide um, what needs to be done. Um, what are the gaps that need to be filled? Um, and we do it ourselves. Mm. In terms of not just um, well providing welfare support for um, our queer rights members, but also in terms of any other projects that our rights queer members are interested in. Mm. So it doesn't really have to be just providing welfare. It can be um, an art project or it can be anything that is um, from our rice members, mm-hmm. rice queer members in particular, yes. Yeah. So it's sort of like a, a model of um, self-determination, I guess, essentially, that's, that's governing yes, that's this, this project. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And so how did this come about? Is it is it a new development or have you has RISE been doing this work for some time? Oh, RISE has been doing this work for since 2015. So um, I remember that period really well because there were absolutely nothing around for queer refugees. And at that time, um, RISE had, um, a number of rice queer members coming in to get support, and it was these rice queer members who set up the the standard. Um, like rice has already has always been supportive of queer refugees, um, but it was an it was when queer members come in to get support that there are. Um, um, that there are more, uh, I think, formal process of um, supporting queer members because, let's say, different queer members have different specific needs and also queer members tend to have different needs than other um, non-queer members as well. And so it was through working with queer members that rise um have a very develop a really um strong standard on how to support queer refugees and those standards are set by queer refugees mm. it was not set by anyone else yeah yeah, that's so important. And could you you mentioned then about um, Rise queer members having having specific needs? Um, would you be able to um, share with us a bit about some of those specific needs or experiences? Um, a lot of I think a lot of the time people from the queer community um, will have perspective about what. Um, what are the discrimination or the barriers that people face? Let's say a very famous generic one is the barrier to get married or the barrier the barrier that they cannot get married to their spouse. Um, in terms of queer refugees, a lot of the time, the first thing that our um, that our members, our queer members, have to think about is visa. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have visa, then you don't have a future, really, in in this colonized country. Um, the way, so 
sorry. So, um, so that is one need, and another, I think, very important thing is there are many um, queer rights members who are also ethnic Chinese, and of and people don't tend to um, remember that queer ethnic Chinese have to deal with a lot of um, horrendous experience of trauma and also torture inside detention centers, inside Australian-run detention centers. Um, and no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to address the issue because the reality is detention centers are the breeding grounds of queer phobia mm-hmm. and that it is supported by the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And... I mean, yeah, why why is it so important to be talking about um, these intersections between border imperialism, racism, queerphobia and transphobia? Um, when you look at our project, you can see that we don't just talk about the current issues that, are, that we face as queer refugees. We also talk about the root of where our um, issues come from. So let's say... Many of our countries have been, or if not most, if not all of the countries that we came from, have been colonized in some way by European countries, which as a consequence put in some really horrible precedences in terms of how um, queer people are treated in our countries. So when we come, I mean, after even after the um, we gain independence, the colonial laws or the colonial culture is still around. And that is the source of our struggle. We have to continue to cope with the post-colonial um, oppression that was built on during, that was built on during, during colonial time. Um, and so then when we have to run away, we still experience, we still continue, um, how do you say it? When we have to run away, when we come into a country to seek protection, it doesn't mean that we completely will be treated as human. Many times, Many of our rights members are treated in really horrendous way um, in Australia by the community, um, and a lot of the time, the way they are treated have multi-layered in terms of the fact that is a combination of transphobia and um, and racism. Um, and on top of the experience that you are not just someone who has the privilege of being born a citizen, um, you are coming to seek protection. So that is a very different power dynamic, and that is a really precarious situation that we have to deal with. Um, so even when we have to run from our country to seek protection in, let's say, so-called Australia, we still have to deal with a lot of... Um, discrimination that we 
still faces in our country. Um, so that um, you can find um, one big example is let's say the marriage equality postal survey um, a while back. It was designed um, to create a lot of um, hate speech and hate campaigns against queer people. That is exactly what many of us have to face in our country, and that is exactly the reason why we had to run away. Um, and we are still having to deal with it here um, at that point. And on top of the fact that the wider the Yes campaign um, doesn't really care about us anyway. It, um, people tend to care more about other queer people who have um, social capital, who have privilege, who um, who are more visible without thinking that it's actually queer refugees are one of the worst affected by this whole thing because there are not there are very minimal services around for us. There are um, um, minimal supports for us. Mm. Yeah. So that is one example that I can give you. Yeah, and it's such a powerful example, particularly because, as you're saying, it's sort of well, twofold or more than twofold in that both, you know, in the during the marriage equality um, campaign, you know, both it kicked up such vitriol and it, you know, really allowed this like awful public debate um, around queerness. But it also, you know, the Yes campaign really relied upon these these stereotypes of, you know, white middle class cisgendered. Um, gay and lesbian people with citizenship privilege, essentially, you know, as being the centre of that debate um, and of the people who should get rights. And that excludes so many, um, you know, queer and trans people, but particularly, as we're talking about this morning, queer and trans refugees and ex-detainees. Yep. Um, Yeah, in terms of the queer project and how um, unique Rice Queer Project is, I think... Even when other organizations want to or have already set up a queer program for queer refugees to get support, um, our project still remains very unique and the only of its kind because it's led and managed by queer refugees. So even the coordinator um, of the RISE Queer Project are and will be a RISE queer refugee member. Mm-hmm. And that project coordinator, if anyone in that project get paid, it will be RISE queer members yeah. who will get paid to do the work within the RISE queer project, mm-hmm. um, which makes it very unique compared to other programs. So this is sort of like a very strong message where we assert ourselves that um, we are the decision makers of our lives and our future. And we are the one who um, who understand best about our issues, about what what we are facing, and what needs to be done to address the issues that we face from the root problem, not just from the symptoms. Because there are so many symptoms. Once we address one symptom, another another pop up. Yeah. Yeah. And just to finish up, Eric, how can listeners find out more about the launch and fundraiser next week and come along to show their support? You can go to RISE Facebook page at 
rice, refugee survivors and ex-detainees and click on our events tab where you will see um, that one of our upcoming events, um, one of the top events will be um, the RISE Queer Project launch and fundraiser. Wonderful. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it will be on a Saturday, um, the 13th of April next week um, from 6pm until 10pm. Amazing. Thank you um, so much for joining us this morning, Eric. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. So that's, uh, we were just chatting with Eric from the Rise Queer Project about the launch and fundraiser happening next Saturday. Um, we also heard um, from Hannah Murphy Walsh about Womanjika happening at Footscray Community Arts this Saturday. Also an event at the Wheeler Centre, uh, More Than Queer on Tuesday night. We were chatting with Adolfo about that. And then earlier in the show, we heard from Nick Carson about the Transgender Day of Visibility that happened on Sunday. And also about the need to raise New Start um, with Jeremy from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. If you're free at 11 30 today, get along outside Frydenberg's office to show you support for that. It's all we have time for on breakfast and Thursday breakfast this morning. Stay tuned for Lost in Science. Tomorrow morning, there'll be Friday breakfast and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.